Welcome to The Elucidators. It is August 21st, a Wednesday. Uh, we're going to try to record on Wednesdays from here on out on a weekly basis. My name is Steve Pally. I'm a PhD in international relations, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How's it going, Sums? Good. I also have one of those PhDs. Yeah, we're nerds. We like IR and security studies. We're going to talk about it, yeah. hopefully in a fun and accessible way. way. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so anyway, our topic this week um, is Hong Kong and what is happening in Hong Kong. Um, what is happening in Hong Kong? Right. So for the last 11 or so weeks, there have been massive, massive protests in the streets of Hong Kong. And by massive, I mean Hong Kong is a population somewhere between 7 and 8 million, roughly 25 to 30% of their population. So 2 million people have hit the streets to protest. It's crazy, man. This is something that uh, simply doesn't happen in the United States. We have big, big marches and protests, but never at that like magnitude or concentration, right? Right. The idea just for scaling, like 100 million Americans have never take, are not taking to the streets right now. No. That is, that is not happening. No, not, not of that size. So this has been going on for 11 weeks. And what are the Hong Kongers protesting about? So this is a deep, deep question. Most immediately, the Hong Kongers are protesting an extradition bill that, is, uh, that has, during those 11 weeks of protests, actually been scrapped. The protests have continued, though, because there is a deeper issue at play. And that issue, which is going to be the driving force of this episode, is what is the role of China in Hong Kong? Right. And to understand that, we kind of need to delve into the history a little bit, right? Uh, let's, let's do it in, I don't know, two to three minute nutshell. All right. Challenge accepted. Okay. Awesome. So during the 19th century, the British and the Chinese engage in several uh, skirmishes, wars, depending on how you want to define it. Uh, basically over British demands to of access to Chinese markets. Yeah, and in particular, uh, they needed a market to sell their opium to, uh, their opium from India and Afghanistan. Uh, nice bunch of guys uh, basically used what was called gunboat diplomacy uh, against the Chinese, won the war, and basically stole the island of Hong Kong uh, as one of the results. And... Uh, at that time, Hong Kong was kind of a sleepy fishing village. Um, since then, it's become something rather more than that, right? Right. So in 1897, the British and the Chinese sign an agreement which says that the British will have a lease. Sorry, in 1898, they will sign a lease for 99 years such that Hong Kong will be under British governance. During this time, during this 99 years until 1997, Hong Kong develops into an incredible financial hub for Asia. Uh, for most of that time, China does not develop nearly at the same pace. They have their communist revolution, and until the Great Leap Forward in the late 70s into the 80s, <clears throat> China does not begin to adopt capitalist economic policies, and so it is much slower to develop than Hong Kong. Right. Hong Kong basically turns into this glittering capitalist paradise, uh, like a true world city and one of the most important stock markets in the entire world. I think the fifth biggest um, yes. and probably the biggest in Asia still. 
Uh, I th- I'm not sure if the Shanghai is bigger, but either way, okay. big money in Hong Kong. Yes. Uh, but just to timeline it again, in the I believe it's the 80s, Thatcher sits down with Deng Xiaoping and they ha- they discuss what are we going to do about Hong Kong. That's so, uh, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, as yes. we nerds and- like to call her. <laughs> uh, so we're coming on. We're coming closer to 1999. The British and the Chinese sit down. What are we going to do about Hong Kong? Uh, the 99 years is almost up, and they decide. Well, we're going to extend this transition period where Hong Kong will become part of mainland China again, but it will be a 50-year extension. Yes. Until July 1st, 2047. Right. And during that time, we're going to have, and we're going to return to this phrase a lot, quote unquote, one country, two systems. Yeah. One country, two systems. And part of the two systems, part of the Hong Kong system is that it would be semi-democratic. Right. Uh, so it's not fully democratic and it never has been, right? It's, uh, um, I don't think everybody can vote or everybody can vote, but their votes are diluted in such a way that um, commercial interests actually get more, as many or more members uh, on the legislative council than the people that live there, right? Right. So here's what's happened. Uh, Since handover in 97, um, there's been this thing where Hong Kongers vacillate between identifying themselves as more Hong Kongers or as Chinese or some variation therein. Like, oh, I'm ethnically Chinese, but I'm a Hong Konger or something along those lines. But every time that China uh, pushes forward into Hong Kong, the Hong Kong identity shoots up. But going back to your point about the semi-democratic nature of Hong Kong, Hong Kong doesn't have a president or a prime minister. They have a chief executive who is selected by a legislative council. Legislative council has 70 seats in it. Now, we think of, okay, well, there's some sort of legislative government. This means there's direct elections, and they represent some sort of geographical entity. This is not, in fact, the case with Hong Kong. Of those 70 seats, only 40, I believe, are actually popularly elected. The remaining 30 represent various business interests in in Hong Kong. Yeah, so it's kind of this combination of like a democracy and really an oligarchy, um, which is government by the prominent or the rich, right? Uh, It's not fully democratic, but it's certainly more democratic than what the Chinese currently have going, especially in recent years after the ascension and and really coronation of the current Chinese premier, Xi Jinping, right? Yes. Who does not like to be compared to certain cartoon bears who shall not be named here? Yeah. No, that's that's a no go. Uh, he likes to be compared to really uh, the great Chinese emperors of history. Um, he has an imperial mindset, and to whatever extent the Chinese Communist Party was showing, uh, if not democratic features, um, at least uh, limitations on on its authoritarian tendencies. Uh, that's all gone now. Um, Xi Jinping is now president for life. Um, and he controls every aspect of the Communist Party and the Chinese state, including the armed forces. So he's basically a one-man show, um, about as anti-democratic as you can possibly get, right? So this really is one country, two systems. Um, And uh, it's been causing some friction, right? Yeah. 
So we've talked, we've kind of intertwined the political and the economic because such is life, right? These are how societies, they're just different angles at looking at, at social functions. But going back to the economic part and tying it into the political, when China and when China agrees to a 50-year extension of reintegrating Hong Kong, uh, at that time, Hong Kong's economy in the early 90s is roughly a quarter of their GDP is roughly a quarter the size of China's. So very substantial given the, the difference in size of geography and population. At that time, China was very large, but very poor. Now China is very large and getting richer in a big fat hurry. And they've been growing at basically uh, 8% annual clip for 30 years. And if you do that math, um, you get some pretty nice looking numbers uh, in terms of compound interest. <laughs> so Hong Kong, in terms of, uh, I guess, overall importance uh, to the economy of China as a whole, including Hong Kong, uh, has gone down from about a quarter of the total economy to less than 3%. It's much less big of a deal in, term, in absolute terms, right? But it's still valuable for other reasons. Um, because it has a lot of human capital. It has a very, very highly educated workforce. Um, it has a lot of rich people with um, major social connections, both within China and to the West and in the outside world. Um, and as we said earlier, uh, it has a bunch of investors who are active in the stock market. Um, so it's really very useful as like a trading center and really a hub um, for connections uh, to China from the outside world. So it actually, in terms of its overall importance to China and the rest of the world, it punches way above its weight. The other thing, moving back to the political and the social, is that over this time, the technological revolutions, uh, digital communications, all these things have hit both countries, but in two very different ways. It's a known thing that in China, the internet and communications are largely censored. There is this thing called the Great Firewall of China, beyond, behind which uh, communications are monitored. There are certain things that can be discussed and certain things that can't. This is not the case with Hong Kong. Hong Kong is very much Western open in this way. There is open discussion. There is, there is protest. There is free speech. Uh, this has been one of the spark points for the current protest. So the extradition bill that kicked all this stuff off started actually in a very reasonable way. Uh, a Hong Konger couple went to Taiwan, I believe. The man killed and then China wanted to extradite him. Hong Kong uh, did not want to do this, not because they're pro-murder, but because various elements, various people within Hong Kong society have been made to disappear allegedly, I guess is must be said, by uh, at the hand of, of the Chinese government. So for example, booksellers in Hong Kong who were selling books that were embarrassing to the Chinese regime, certain political figures were made to disappear, one of whom was made to then reappear <laughs> on Chinese television. Presto changeo. Yeah, crying and apologizing for misbehaving. Yeah, and this is something you see on Chinese television not uncommonly. Uh, there's a lot of sort of show trials and self-criticism circles. Um, it's kind of a, a legacy from the country's Moist past that has been, I guess, reanimated um, during the Xi Jinping era. Um, but it's not something 
Hong Kongers ever expect to see. And it's certainly not something they want to see because it's indicative of the Chinese basically a creeping takeover. Yeah, um, that's right. And, and like in terms of the 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 legal aspect of this and the treaty um, signed between Great Britain and China, it's that's basically what's supposed to happen, a creeping takeover um, where you have one country, two systems for 50 years, right? And we're now... Oh, 22 years into that 50 year period, something like that. Yeah. Um, so we still have 28 years to run. Um, and it seems like the Chinese are starting to get a little impatient. Um, right. But that's the crazy. Go yeah, ahead. Okay. But that's one of the crazy things about the, the handover thing is that the agreement said the Hong Kongers would be allowed to maintain their lifestyle. Right. How does that happen? How do you make that happen? I think you make that happen by just punting any problems like that into the future and assuming that Hong Kong and China will basically converge over time uh, in terms of both economic development and uh, governance. Uh, the thought was for a really long time that the Chinese, as they became wealthier, would become more democratic and basically settle down and become a quote unquote re responsible stakeholder in the international system. So basically a, a bigger version of, well, the United States or Europe, um, if they got rich enough, right? And the well, idea was to- Steve, has that happened? It has totally not happened. The exact <laughs> opposite has happened. They've gotten uh, very rich, um, at least in some parts of the country, uh, particularly the coastal you know, elements of China, um, the big glittering you know, cities like um, Shanghai and uh, Shenzhen, which is- Hey, tell me, what, Steve, could you tell me a little more about Shenzhen? Uh, yeah, why not? So Shenzhen is what the Chinese call a special economic zone, and it's basically situated right across the border from Hong Kong. And it used to be- Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's the Chinese version of Hong Kong, effectively. And it has and grown- on into, the border of Hong Kong. Right on the border of Hong Kong. And-, and it popped up and grew so strong right on Hong Kong's border. Yeah, oh, how about that? Um, yeah, maybe to, you know, kind of aid that uh, 50 year transitionary period. Um, as it happens, Shenzhen is now the staging area for massive um, military exercises um, being conducted by uh, the Red Army and the People's Armed Police, which is uh, China's sort of uh, quasi military arm. So you have videos of these guys marching around, beating up, uh, I guess, other soldiers who are like fake protesters. Um, and basically trying to intimidate uh, the Hong Kongers into uh, getting off the streets. This, by the way, is, a, I think, a really uh, important time for us to say, we've given a lot of background at this point, but this is very much a ongoing thing, and it is ongoing at a very fast rate. There are stories this morning in popular press, uh, both uh, English language press from East Asia as well as in the West, which said that this morning there were other, there were violent clashes between protesters and the police um, in, a, in a subway station. We won't go into the details that has uh, significant value to the protesters. Um, the Chinese are, uh, like, like Steve just said, they are loading up on their military presence. It is actually unclear now what uh, criminal element might be involved. That's uh, right. Involved. Yeah, you want to talk a little bit about that, Steve? Yeah, so um, basically, crowds of counter demonstrators have appeared uh, in the midst of these demonstrations in Hong Kong and started beating protesters. And there is some thought that um, 
basically uh, Chinese gangs called triads, um, basically Chinese organized crime groups um, have connections to both the Hong Kong government, the powers that be in Hong Kong and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and uh, both of those more authoritarian elements are utilizing uh, these gangs of thugs basically to beat protesters and try to get them off the streets. The whole point is to try to get these guys off the streets and it's just not working, right? And what's happening is Hong Kong's economy is crashing, the market is down, um, and it's unclear uh, whether or not the Chinese are going to intervene militarily. What do you think is going to happen? Well, the other thing, I'll tell you what I, I think is going to happen um, in one moment. The other thing that is happening is that Western social media companies like Twitter and Facebook have removed several uh, accounts that they have said are linked to Chinese misinformation campaigns. Oh, yeah. No, the Chinese are running the whole playbook, right? So uh, they're astroturfing social media. What does astroturfing social media mean? Um, that's basically a bunch of fake accounts and bots um, that are disseminating fake news, or at the very least, news that is heavily slanted towards the uh, official Chinese position. Um, so yeah, we've got the fake news uh, 2016 election thing going on. Um, we've got accusations of the quote unquote black hand of foreign intervention active in Hong Kong. Talk so, about the CIA. Yeah, the CIA. Um, Russia and China both like to point the finger at the United States for conducting destabilizing activities and aiding rioters. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's the whole sort of information warfare playbook in addition to sort of these threatening actions, both within Hong Kong uh, by virtue of like these armed gangs of thugs and the police uh, who, who have not been gentle, by the way. They've been firing rubber bullets and uh, tear gas canisters, both of which can actually kill you. Um, which is why, by the way, uh, part of this is also called the umbrella movement. Protesters have taken to the streets uh, with umbrellas. And part of that is uh, it's symbolic, right? The, this is the symbol of the protest. The other is that it's useful for when bullets or, or yeah. cans of tear gas are fired at you. You can use the umbrellas for protection. Yeah, at least some protection from these less lethal munitions. Right. Um, yeah, so they're doing that inside Hong Kong. Outside Hong Kong, they're massing troops on the border and like a lot of them, right? They have tanks, they have armored personnel carriers. Um, and so, I mean, the question going forward is whether or not we're going to see a military intervention on the part of the Chinese or whether these protests are going to go on indefinitely or whether we're going to see them die down over time. Um, so here's what I'm going to say about this. What's going to happen next? Uh, the protests are massive. The protests are absolutely massive. And uh, they appear to be student-led. Uh, led yeah. by university students in Hong Kong. The thing that makes this a little different is that professional classes, doctors, lawyers, folks that have uh, that <laughs> that aren't in the student uh, activist movement, they've been taking to the streets as well. Yeah. Um, There's actually I, a lot of reasons to protest the Hong Kong administration. It's not just about the erosion of sovereignty. It's also the fact that Hong Kong, over time, has turned into one of the most unequal countries on earth, or city-states for that matter. Um, it basically has a Gini coefficient, which is the way that nerds like us measure income inequality, much closer to places like South Africa than the United States or even Singapore. Um, so uh, Hong Kong has become completely unaffordable, especially for the young. And we live in Los Angeles, right? Los Angeles is not an affordable city. 
Um, Hong Kong is like worse in a way that is literally off the charts. If you were to like visualize it, um, it is several. The income inequality in uh, Hong Kong is several times worse than you would find in places like Vancouver or San Francisco or Manhattan yeah. or Los Angeles. As bad as that is. And it's really right. bad here. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, it's, it's not good, but there it's worse. And so one of the things is uh, the people, okay, let's, let's try and summarize this a little bit just to recap. You have this very advanced city state that it shares a border with a country that it's slowly supposed to become a part of. Its political system does not really is semi-democratic in that it only to a certain extent represents the interests of the of the people, the 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 preferences of the people. Yeah. And it really hasn't done a great job of like spreading the wealth. No. So that's right. So this semi-democratic system doesn't really do a good job of uh, of 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 distributing wealth at all. It's created a system of literally, as you said, off the charts, income inequality. At the same time, the culture of Hong Kong is decidedly closer, has moved like like a South Korea or a Japan in the sense that there's open communication, there's free assembly. Some of those enlightenment values that uh, illuminate Western countries like the United States or Great Britain, these are, or these things illuminate uh, Hong Kong society. Yeah. The British ran Hong Kong for not a short period of time, 150 years. Um, so Hong Kongers generally are fluent in English and they practice a form of British common law. You know, they have, if not constitutional rights, at least that sort of cultural legacy from the British, right? So they really are um, their own thing. They're both Chinese and Western. And the fear right now is it, so. A few weeks back, the extradition, the protester demanded that the extradition law be scrapped mm-hmm. uh, because of the fear that this would mean the end of Hong Kong as the society that it's come to become. Right. right. Uh, meanwhile, Hong Kongers look at Shenzhen and they say, okay, this is more or less Hong Kong continued except under full Chinese rule and Chinese cultural norms, which are government dictated. They look at other countries, other, sorry, other. Uh, former European territories that are under the same kind of uh, uh, two systems, one country rules, like uh, like Taiwan or Macau, and they well, see Taiwan it, is is kind of its own place, right? <laughs> right. But from Macau, this is yeah. Macau is another one of these examples. Macau has moved much closer to China, and I mean this in the most literal sense. China built a the longest sea bridge in the in the world to connect Macau. To mainland China. Yeah. And incidentally, uh, raising our uh, James Bond uh, illusion streak to two episodes in a row, uh, Macau was most recently pictured in um, which James Bond movie was it? I think it was Casino Royale, right? Uh, was it? Or was it Quantum of Solace? It was, it was definitely one of the Daniel Craig ones. Um, I thought remember. it was Casino Royale because of the casinos, but nonetheless, you may be right, but I think that was Monaco. Anyway, back to the, you, you're, you could be right, but back to your question of what happens next. Uh, I think you and I are, we might disagree. I frankly think that look, since 2000, since 97, there have been small protests, but since 2003, 2004, 
there have been several very large-scale protests in Hong Kong every time China pushes a little bit too hard. Uh, but we have to be honest about this. Like, China is not getting weaker. Uh, at the time of handover, China's GDP was uh, Hong Kong's GDP was eighteen percent of of China's. China's GDP has grown to to into the trillions. Hong Kong's is at uh, I think it's around three hundred billion, still punching well above its weight class. Yeah, Hong, China is increasing their military strength. I think China is just going to have to. China is going to keep pushing, but they know that they can't, as it is right now. They can't go in and have a full military takeover. The costs would be too high. Everything gets broadcast around the world from Hong Kong. There's too much of a foreign influence there. There's too many expats in, in Hong Kong. I think China puffs up. They wait out for the protesters to lose some resolve, no matter how long that takes. They keep taking these half measures of putting, putting troops on the border. And they keep plucking that chicken one feather at a time. Because, look, it, like you said, it's been 21, 22 years since the handover. There's another uh, 28. 28 left to go. Thank you. Uh, I don't do math so good on the fly. Uh, and China has all the cards, almost all the cards. Hold on. Almost all the cards. To, they've got the time, and they've got the resources, and they've got the will, and they've got the power. So... so yeah, I, I agree um, that they have more than half the time remaining and they can take all the time they want past that, right? Mm -hmm. um, I also agree that we're unlikely to see a military intervention because it would uh, not only kill the golden goose, it would probably prompt a uh, global recession uh, along the lines of an Asian September 11th type event. Um, really massive. Um, so we're unlikely to see that, right? Um, but in terms of being able to just wait the Hong Kongers out, um, I think that's going to be tough um, because the youth of the nation, the, the, the Hong Konger nation, right, um, is now, they have this idea. Um, they've added full democracy to their list of five demands, right? Um, a lot of these protesters are now not only interested in things like um, the end of the uh, um, judicial bill, right, uh, being fully withdrawn, um, the extradition bill, um, and things like uh, a committee of inquiry into police behavior during the protests, they now want full universal suffrage, um, full democracy, which they don't have and have never had. And this is obviously completely unacceptable to Beijing, right, because not only is it not converging with the Chinese system? It's actually moving actively away from it. Um, so things are actually moving in the wrong direction in some ways in Hong Kong. Right, but at some okay, I yeah, I all that is all that's correct. But the only thing I can think is like, what is Xi, Xi Jinping? As long as he continues to look tough or do enough to look tough, that's kind of the sweet spot. It's doing enough to look tough. Frankly, uh, if in fact, if I don't see why. Yeah, we've seen that from our own president, right? <laughs> right. Well, okay. So this is, it's, it's good to bring up Trump. looking tough. It's, it's a good thing to bring up uh, Trump and the US at this point, because historically from the, during the Cold War and afterwards, 
it has been uh, a pillar of U.S. foreign policy to promote democracy and support democratic movements. Uh, our, our friends in Latin America will have lots to say about this, but that's another podcast. Uh, yeah. Nonetheless, um, this would be, uh, one would imagine that either of the Bushes or Obama would offer more support, or Clinton, would offer more support to the Hong Kongers or try and resolve the issue. However, Trump has taken a stance of non-intervention in other countries' domestic politics. Right, which is the preferred line of the Chinese and the Russians, for that matter. It's like, we're about sovereignty, non-intervention. Uh, Hong Kong is part of China. You know, there are two systems, but it is one country, right? To, yeah. to like call back to that little ditty earlier. Um, so we're talking about Chinese internal affairs. Um, the Hong Kong protesters don't see it that way but the Chinese certainly do. And basically the Trump administration has been like, okay, do your thing, you know? But right now, look, China is hurting because of Trump's trade war. Uh, Trump actually could have some leverage to get China to back off on Hong Kong, yeah. to, to, to mitigate tensions. A at little. least for now, right? Right, at least for now. Look, again, in the long run, save Chinese state collapse, I don't know how Hong Kong survives. Yeah, no, I, I take your point. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over uh, the coming months, years, and decades um, as this process plays out. Um, in the more immediate term, um, we have two kind of important events to watch vis-a-vis um, -vis the Hong Kong protests. The first is that school is starting up again in early September. And insofar as so many of these protesters are like either high schoolers or in college or just young people in general, um, there's been some suggestion that this will naturally thin out the crowds. Uh, I think that's possible, but I've also been reading a lot about how um, the protesters are saying their teachers are in on it with them and will let them out of school to attend protests. Um, so we'll see. I would imagine that it's going to affect crowd volume at least a little bit, but maybe not as much as the Chinese would prefer to think. That's number one. Number two is actually a pretty important uh, internal affair in China having to do with the 70th anniversary of the uh, establishment of, I guess, the Chinese Communist Party's rule over China in 1949. Um, and this is basically going to be a celebration of Xi Jinping's authoritarian system and party rule over China. Um, there's going to be like a full military parade. So we're going to, it's nothing like a good missile parade uh, to really get your patriotism up. Um, you know, it's going to have be a review of the troops in Beijing. And he wants to project, as you said earlier, strength, um, both internally to China and to the world at large. And having like this kind of festering wound on the side of China going on, you know, these protests in Hong Kong, all this is happening, not so great. Um, so there's some suggestion that if there's going to be some kind of military intervention, it's going to have to wait until after this party Congress, um, possibly uh, until October or something along those, those lines. So what do you think is going to happen next? Festering wound, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead with festering wound. Um, this, this seems like the kind of thing that... Um, might die down after some period of weeks or months. I would expect Carrie Lam, who is the current Hong Kong administrator, chief administrator, um, to 
make some series of concessions or possibly resign fall on her. She's story. also made several concessions already. Yeah. Well, she's going to have probably make some more. Um, she may resign um, probably involuntarily and be replaced uh, by somebody, you know, new or more palatable um, to the protesters. I expect some series of concessions just to get these people off the streets, um, you know, over, over the short term, um, over the longer term, I think the sentiments are pretty clear and and like a lot of this is driven by, you know, serious underlying economic trouble. Um, and on top of that, um, fear of being culturally subsumed. Um, so part of the concessions package might be economic reforms, which are sorely needed in particular building more housing, right. Which we could lose, use in Los Angeles, by the way. Um, not that I'm suggesting, you know, the party should take over LA. That would not be so great. Um, but um, they've got to find a way to like take the, some of the air out of this tire, right? So, uh, but but over the long run, it's not like people are going to forget what the sort of overarching situation is. You know, part it's of the not, not good. Part of the problem right now, the reason. Okay, so uh, a cynical listener says, well, if you think that this is just going to keep going on as it has been, why are you even bothering to talk about this shit? Which is a reasonable question. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a completely reasonable question. And quite, frankly, reasonable. quite frankly, the answer is the stakes for both sides for backing down at this moment are very high. Yeah. So there has to be a slow, to use your air and tire thing, there's got to be a slow letting out of some of the air from this tire so that it, this situation can deflate. Yeah, right? there's going to there's gonna have to be a climb down. And I think a climb down is a lot more likely than an explosion, but some kind of explosion could happen. You know, like Xi Jinping has said there are red lines, right? Um, yeah. And you he said so two years ago in Hong Kong to the Hong Kongers. Yeah, but he's being a lot more specific now about what those red lines are. Um, it's talking about democracy. It's violating the... Uh, one system, two countries principle, right? Basically, any notion, one country, two systems. Sorry, yeah. uh, any any suggestion of of um, violating Chinese sovereignty and the domination of the party, right? Um, those are no nos, right? And when protesters start talking about adding full democracy um, to to their list of demands and basically moving away from where the Chinese want to see them go, that's when you start to see quote unquote, aspects of terrorism um, creep into the official Chinese description description of what's happening in Hong Kong rather than uh, student protesters, right? So you're starting to see more and more of that type of rhetoric out of the Chinese. And that's frankly not a good sign. Chinese, the Chinese, by the way, uh, sorry, mainland China, because again, one country, two systems. Sure. They are, in fact, supposed to go in to Hong Kong if domestic tranquility in Hong Kong reaches some level of disorder. That's part of the agreement. Yeah. But the, the legislative council has to call them in. Right. And we're not to that point yet. Yeah. And they, but, I think they would really prefer not to go in. It would be very bad for everybody involved, including the Chinese. <laughs> um, yeah, but they, there is a, there is a chance that they'll have to. Look, uh, we're we're obviously going to keep monitoring this as uh, as we go on with further episodes, but we wanted to quickly 
touch back on uh, on the first episode. Oh yes, the uh, the boom goes the secret, not so secret Russian military nuclear. Yeah, missile. boom goes the radioactive dynamite in the Arctic Circle. Yeah, so uh, Russia and in, uh, in believing that comedy of errors should never end, <laughs> decided uh, what was it? So basically, here's what happens. Uh, there's a norm amongst nuclear countries to allow for data monitoring. So you can say, hey, there's been a big, been been a big radiation spike in X place, and so everybody knows, and it feeds into an international database. That's right. It's part of the nuclear test ban treaty regime to make sure that uh, nobody's conducting active nuclear tests, right? So we have this sensor network, and the Russians are a voluntary part of that sensor network. So what happened? Well, first. Uh, they said that, so the data stopped coming in from Russia after the missile explosion. And then they said, oh, we are having technical difficulties. And Mm. then they said, yeah, I mean, okay, fine, whatever. You had technical difficulties controlling your nuclear missile, so I can't rule that out, fine. (laughs) Uh, And then they said, "Mm, no, we decided we were going to stop. We're actually not under any real obligation to keep doing this. Yeah. Uh, this has led to several Western think pieces. The uh, excellent Ankit Panda over at the New Republic has an article out today entitled The Absurd Strategy Behind Russia's Nuclear Explosion. Subtitle, A Radioactive Mess Near the Arctic Circle suggests our next suggests our next superpower arms race will be even more foolish than the last one. Can't and, wait. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you're watching Chernobyl on HBO. I am not. But this appears to be uh, running back on a much smaller scale, the boneheadery yeah. uh, of Chernobyl. Well, thank God it's on a much smaller scale, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. And but, it, with- that's a, but it's on a smaller scale. So there's no reason. Okay, man. Here's, okay. Here's what I don't get. Everybody knows. Everybody knows this is happening. There's no reason to try and cover this up repeatedly. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, but, but, um, here we are, uh, they're doing it like fools. Um, anyway, I think we'll leave it there for this week. Um, once again, uh, rate us and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to write in at the elucidators, all one word at gmail.com, uh, and give us feedback or ask us questions. Awesome. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next yeah. time. See you next time.